Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to, lots to talk about. Axios had some interesting, interesting numbers. Because lately I've been hearing a lot of people going, you know, I'd really like to, you know, rebuild the roads and bridges. And I'd like to do all that, that investing in infrastructure and investing in reshoring manufacturing and, you know, investing in things like healthcare and education. We'd love to do all that stuff. But, but Rick, we're, we're broke. We don't have any money. Couldn't possibly do all those wonderful things that you talk about. And look, we've got some problems. Uh, $34 trillion in debt, which we've recently uh, passed. Uh, puts us somewhere in the debt to GDP ratio of about 123 percent, and 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 I get people going, but you know that's you know we're going to be Greece. You know if you remember, Greece was like 700 to one debt to GDP ratio. Definitely not Greece, and not even Japan, who has the right now the highest uh, debt to GDP ratio of the industrialized countries at 255 percent. China's nipping at our heels at 83%. So the world, the world is in this this debt-fueled bubble because of the pandemic. Had a little thing happen. Maybe you heard about it. And we spent a lot of money to make sure that we got through it. And it's interesting to hear people, you know, say, well, you know, it's all this inflation because Joe Biden spent all this money. And you go, no, most of the spending was done under Trump. I mean, a guy spent a quarter of that 32 $34 $34 trillion. I'm making it better than it actually is. Um, and this is where, you know, my mind goes to these weird places because, you know, right now you've got all the bickering and all the nonsense going on in D.C. about, you know, should we pay our bills? Shouldn't we? Should we, you know, not do anything? Should we, you know, try and save Social Security? Or should we just let it wither on the vine? Understand, by design, our Republican friends, they want to destroy Medicare they want to destroy Social Security. They want to destroy the social safety net. They want they want the good old days 
or if you're hungry enough and desperate enough to work for poverty wages, well, that, that my friends, is your reality. And look, they're, they're, they're loosening child labor laws so they can get to that point to where you don't really have, have a choice. Got to send those kids into the workforce. Let them work for poverty wages just so you can keep a roof over the head and a meal on the table. But it got me into one of these discussions yesterday about about debt and deficits. And, and it's amazing to me how many people don't look at themselves while they're advocating for certain programs. For instance, I talked to a guy who is literally 300 to 1 debt to GDP ratio at his own kitchen table. Because he's got a mortgage, he's got a car payment, he's got some loans, he's got credit cards, he's got all kinds of stuff. And didn't actually bother to do the math. And I said, I'll be honest with you, I would rather take the U.S.'s position uh, with, with assets, the ability to raise taxes on rich people, and, and you know do some common sense stuff to solve our debt problems than yours in an industry that sadly is, is probably going to go away in your lifetime uh, to automation. And you're still 300 to 1 debt to GDP ratio. And it was one of these kind of epiphany moments for this guy going... I never thought of it that way. And and we don't think about things in, in that in that frame. That our own personal life, maybe we're maybe we're worse off than than our own how is that possible? We're worse off than our own government. And and again, I come back to we can solve those problems of our government. We can. We've got the tools. We have the ability. We just have to get on the same page. So when I started talking about, you know, well, what do you do when, when you can't pay the light bill? What do you do when you don't have money to put food on the table? What do you do? And his thing was, well, I usually work a little bit of overtime. Uh, you know, we, we do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. We bring in, we bring in extra money to be able to cover the cost. I go, but you, you, don't, you don't cut things out. Like, you, don't, you know, there's a hole in the roof. You don't let the hole get bigger, right? And the answer is, of course not. So he basically answered all of the questions politically that he needed but still wasn't willing to go, yeah, we should tax rich people, which is mind-blowing to me when you look at the fact that, you know, the pandemic, especially. Now, we're, we're going to blame a lot of this on the pandemic. A lot of our problems, it's easy to go, it's the pandemic's fault. No, uh, it's, it's structural. But, you know, since the pandemic, the five wealthiest people on this planet got even, got even richer. Their wealth grew by almost $900 billion dollars. Five people. While what was it? What was it? Five billion people? Their 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 net worth went backwards. They lost money. And when you look at the fact that the five richest men saw their fortunes rise by 114% between March of 2020 and November of 2023, or or as I like to put it, a cool 14 million bucks an hour, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. Uh, 14 million. And look, if, if you can get a gig for 14 million bucks an hour, I say take it. But the reality is, is not all of us have that that fortune of being one of those five. And right here at home, our billionaires, they saw their wealth grow by a cool $1.6 trillion. They're $1.6 trillion richer than they were in 2020. An increase of 46%. Did you see your net worth go up by 46%? And our heavy three, Musk, Bezos, and Ellison, uh, they saw their wealth jump by 84%. These numbers from Oxfam, the report that came out of, out of that little powwow in, in Switzerland last week. 
And this is where you go, you know, we can we can do things policy-wise to turn the tables and to, oh, I don't know, pay our bills. And look, I'm fiscally conservative. I believe that you have to pay your bills. I believe that you have to raise money to pay those bills. I'm not someone who says we should slash and burn. Sorry, we're not going to let children starve. Sorry, we're not going to kick granny to the curb because she ran out of money and we can't keep her in the nursing home. Sorry, we're not going to do a lot of the conservative pull yourself up by the bootstraps without boots kind of policy measures. We're going to do the right things. We're going to do the compassionate, the empathetic things. We're going to do what you would want people to do for you in your moment of need. But we're going to pay for it. And this is this is the this is the key part here. We're going to pursue policy that are going to allow us. That's right. We're going to pursue policy, smart policy, sound investment that's going to help us build this. And the frustrating part for me is uh, the echo chamber on the right. They want to blame everything on Joe Biden like this is some new construct. Understand, we've been heading down this path for a very long time. The wealth distribution in this country overwhelmingly has gone to our, our heavy one percenters, has gone to the very top and away from you and me. And the sad reality is, is as our wages have stagnated and in a lot of cases declined, revenues going into our government have as well, which means we have less money for Social Security. Or we have less money to invest in education and health care and all of the things that everyone says they want and that we need. And the more I look at this, the, the, well, the angrier I get, because this, this, these were choices that were made. These were policy choices by elected officials bought and paid for by, uh, by campaign dollars. And I always said, look, the rich people have all the money, but we've outprocreated them. There are more of us. We can vote. We can throw the bums out. And, and you know what? We can fight for policies we want. But it's interesting to watch and listen to people who side with the billionaire message. Because that's all we're getting from our corporate-controlled mainstream media. So for me, I say we start taxing these billionaires out of existence, invest in, in public education, invest in public health, and maybe we got a shot. And when we come back, Mary Catherine Ricker is going to be here to share some thoughts. Uh, she's the executive director over at the Schenker Institute. You know, How do we save public education? How do we make sure that every kid has a shot at you know, just, oh, I don't know, Make it a living. Right back. Stick around. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. 
Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, as you may remember, you know, after the holiday, we came back and I talked about my vacation. And I talked about Eddie, the guy in Costa Rica who gave us a, a wonderful tour uh, of his, his his little piece of, of his paradise. And, and again, the thing that stuck with me about the, the day we spent with Eddie was the fact that this is a guy in, in a developing country who his his pride point was the fact that children in his country were going to get a free education as far as their talents could take them. And he hammered on that point numerous times. Uh, the fact that the future for the children of his country were gonna, was going to be bright. Uh, and it wasn't going to benefit him personally. It was going to help it was going to help the kids of his country. And I thought that was it was an interesting moment because I look here at home and there's a move here at home of people who want to destroy what what well what universal education we have at this moment. And here to share some thoughts on well maybe how we how we stop it and why it's important that we push for more expansive education. I keep saying we need to make uh, no more K through 12. We need to go K through 14. Kids walk out with an associate's degree or a vocational trade. But uh, here to share some thoughts on where we need to go. I've asked Mary Catherine Ricker to come talk with us. She's the executive director of the Albert Schenker Institute. You can check out their website, schenkerinstitute.org. Mary Catherine, thanks for taking time for us. Hey, thanks for having me on, Rick. I appreciate it. So, you know, I'm, 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 I was taken back by this guy who, you could you, he was just beaming with pride over the fact that you know their country was investing in education and the kids were going to have these opportunities and you know in a poor country in fact they were selling it to the Nicaraguans as hey come you know pick our bananas and your kids will get an education it was it was it was one of those moments that just stopped me in my tracks i think you know i two things one Eddie is in good company in that around the world, I am inspired and motivated by everyone who has a lot of pride in their public schools and who really believes in universal access to a public education. Um, And at the same time, I know that that's not a given. We have to advocate and fight and make the case every day for why that universal access to free high quality public schools is necessary for all of our all of our young people um, not just in the United States but obviously around the world you know I used to believe that you know education was a, a nonpartisan issue that of course we want our children to get the best education right. of course we want them to be able to go as far as their talents will take a not as deep as their pockets are and yet increasingly I look around and, and that's that's not so. Uh, and I look at a state like Indiana, where there's actually a piece of legislation right now attacking child labor laws, where after eighth grade, you finish eighth grade, 14 years old, you can drop out of school and go work on an industrial farm. You know, who needs an education when you can when you can get out into the farm? It is very it is very conserving. It's concern you know concerning, nerve wracking uh, to think about. Uh, these bills coming up. I know we're early in this legislative session for you know 2024 for those states already in their legislative session. Uh, but I know last year in 2023, I think Economic Policy Institute said that there were 13 states that introduced bills to weaken child labor protections. And I, I think every time one of these happens, we have to ask why, what problem do you think you're solving? Who do you think you're solving that problem for? Because these are not student-centered, these are not child-centered 
laws that are being introduced or bills that are being introduced or laws that are being passed. No, it's it's exploitative. And the, the, the point is, is we need cheap labor. And what better labor to get than kids who don't know their rights, don't know they have rights and won't question anything. And then the problem becomes, you know, you know, 20, 30 years down the road when these kids don't have an education, they don't have opportunities, then what? I don't care. We got our cheap labor. Well, and child labor protections were put in place for really good reasons at the beginning, right? We're actually, you know, we haven't come full circle. Right? We haven't finished creating all the child labor protections we should actually have. And here we have states rolling some of them back. And and we know that this this is happening at the same time that, you know, that states are, you know, sort of rolling back access to anti-poverty programs, or they are, you know, they're rationing funding to their public schools. These things are happening in a coordinated effort. And at the end of the day, our young people are going to be the ones who pay the price. It seems almost like a systematic, well-thought-out, well-funded plan to destroy public education. I mean, look, you know, we, we've got that, that theory about race that's critical, that they hammer on CRT, the DEI, ch now child labor, uh, drag shows and litter boxes. Oh, my. Any reason they can come up with to destroy your local, well, not your local school, because everyone loves their local public schools. It's those other ones. It's those ones. Ones that we, you know, we're told are bad that have we're told have litter boxes in the corner, but no one can ever seem to find. It's you know what is really frustrating about this when you are rolling back protections for students is you actually have other states that are looking actually to strengthen protections for our young people in a variety of ways, right? And so. So on the one hand, you have rolling back protections, making it more dangerous for students to work, uh, ignoring the science uh, that says, the evidence that says that when you are letting students work, you know, during the school day, longer than eight hours, more than 30 hours a week during the school year, that that students end up, you know, they end up sleep deprived, they end up, uh, you know, they end up struggling with consistent attendance, all of the things that get in the way of actually being able to like show up to school, be present and and put their efforts in into the learning situation that we want to create for them. Like you said, at the very beginning of this program, there is, uh, you know, you, we actually don't have to travel overseas. It's it's a luxury when we can. But when we run into someone anywhere who has a pride in their public schools, um, we actually need to be tapping into that pride to really be, you know, deepening it, investing in it. We cannot be ignoring the evidence that says that these child labor protections are good for kids and roll them back and put our students in a precarious position when what we really want them to do, I know what you and I really want them to do and a whole host of people uh, like Eddie we want our students to succeed in their public schools. Yeah, it just seems we're going backwards. And look, you know, on, on a lot of these fronts, uh, these attacks aren't going to affect people like me. They're not going to affect my kids. Uh, my kids don't have to work, you know, 30, 40 hours a week to put food on the table. Uh, they're, they're not going to come after our kids, you know, for, for any of the, you know, the, the, the enormous attacks that we've been seeing. It's, it's the 
already desperate. It's the kids who are already struggling. It's the people who are living in poverty. It's it's the parents who are now going to have to compete against their children in the workplace. This is all well thought out, well planned, and and it's it's diabolical and and it's evil in my view. And I do feel it, though it, it will us. impact us. It will. It, you know. It is. We. You know. We could say. You know. We could look at it to say like, oh, this this may not impact me because you know my students are actually or my children are are now older and you know they're um you know out of college or whatever. But we actually live in a world where we are incredibly interconnected, right? And the more we recognize that, and the more our legislators recognize that, that when you, you know, when you roll back child labor protections, you're actually destabilizing a whole host of young people in your community, which means that your community is in danger of, of a negative impact as well. So we are so inter interconnected. And I think we actually need to care about all the young people in our community, uh, whether they are young people sort of in our own home or next door to us or not. Um, our young people are the future of our communities. They're, they're the future of all of our progress. And we need to be paying attention and we need to be vigilant about some of these mixed messages we're getting where we are making it, you know, we're creating more dangerous situations for our students to work um, where we are not investing in our public schools the way we should be, uh, or, or the way we are, you know, rolling back the sort of social safety nets that families need in our communities. We have to be paying attention to all of these things because we truly are interconnected and we need each other. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a moment, and I said this several months back that I think maybe we need to put education under the, the Department of Defense because it seems like the only time we get the resources we need for something is when you couch it in terms of national security or defense. We got us, we got the, the milk program in schools back 100 years ago because, you know, kids, you know, World War One weren't strong enough to carry carry weapons. So we got to get some milk in there. We got school lunch programs for a lot of the same reasons. Maybe maybe we need to start thinking about this as a national security issue, because if we're breaking up public education, and it's only people who have means who can send their kids to school. What's that going to mean for the vast majority of families who don't have the resources? I appreciate you bringing up the school lunch program because I think it is it is a great uh, it is a great example of some direction of a direction some states are going. You know, rather than rolling back child labor protections, you know, my home state of Minnesota, last legislative session just introduced a universal school meals program for all students in our public schools. And there's evidence now that all students are taking advantage of that, that hunger does not have to be a barrier to learning like it was for some of our students on any given day. Yeah. And there is a great example of, of the sort of contrast that you can have when you have a state legislature that truly has a vision of strengthening the community for our for our young people. Yeah, but the sad thing is, is we've known this for decades. I mean, when I was a kid growing up in the projects on the west side of Cleveland, you know, when in the summertime, we used to go to the local public school, Puritas Elementary School, long gone. 
Uh, but in the summertime, they would have a hot lunch program. And for a lot of kids in that line, it was the only hot meal they got that day. And it, it was beneficial for the community. And, well, you know, one of the first things Ronald Reagan did when he became president is wipe all that stuff out. Mr. Ketchup is a vegetable. Uh, one of those things that one of my first early you know, understanding of what politics means, it means, well, if you vote for this guy, he's going to destroy the school lunch program that that helps so many people in your community. I think, you know, again, I, I think it's a great example to 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 really contrast uh, where we are making decisions that say we all do better when we all do better uh, and where we are making decisions that say like every person's on their own. Yeah. And and, you know, like when we treat people uh, like they are on their own and that there is no support system for them and. They have to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and, you know, sort of all the old adages. What we're really saying is that, you know, is is that I shouldn't I shouldn't care about my community. And and I truly believe that the more we think about what the question of what will make my community stronger, you know, I like the more we are going to reject things like rolling back child labor protections. Oh, it's crazy. And, you know, yesterday on the program, we talked about invisible capital, uh, the idea that there, you know, some people take for granted things that they, you know, just, you know, they, you know, I got an education, you know, my parents mm -hmm. bought me a car, you know, I, I learned a work ethic from my parents who, you know, they, we, I had a mother and father and all that. A lot of people don't have those opportunities and, and a strong, you know, well-funded, well-rounded public education, not everyone is, not everyone's getting in this country. And, and that's, that should be something that we should be striving for, you know, like, like, like Eddie saying, look, you know, this is our future. Our future is bright because we're moving in this direction instead of where we're going. And I fear where we're heading, uh, where we're tearing down things that, that would make us better. I, I mean, I, I think it is like the right question to be asking is, how do we remove as every barrier that is in the way of our students receiving that high quality education, getting to school? And the wrong question is how do we remove barriers for employers to, to ask our students to put in more time during the day, time during school, um, more time during the week, you know, distractions from what their number one priority should be as a young person that is pursuing their education, um, you know, and and creating an opportunity for themselves as you know as they build out their future. You put that so nicely. I mean, I would have I would have framed it a lot differently. I would have said, how do we how do we not let employers exploit our children? But you much more eloquent, and that's why you're the teacher, and I'm uh, you know I've barely <laughs> been out of high school. Uh, but no, here, but here's here's where my I want to wrap this up because you know I think when you talk to the average citizen, they want to have the best schools. They want their neighborhood school to be strong. Absolutely. They like their teacher. But there's so much money. There's so much organizing into destroying the big picture stuff. Yeah, your school's great. Your teacher's wonderful. It's all the other ones that have to go. But in doing that, eventually, don't you lose yours too? That's right. The suspicion of the other. You know, however it sort of manifests itself, like I think my schools are great, but somewhere out there, there must be schools that people don't think are great, you know, that somehow people are still sending their children to, but they don't feel are great. And then somehow, like, obviously, there there are some elected officials who believe. And so therefore, 
let's expand working opportunities for our students and not in the really productive ways we are seeing some communities and schools come together to create like registered apprenticeship programs, strong career and technical education programs, partnerships with apprenticeships and, you know, stackable credentials for students. There are some really exciting and innovative um, programs being put together when schools collaborate with their community to better meet the needs of our students. These are student-centered decisions that allow the expansion of experiential learning and other hands-on learning programs that come out of career and technical education and out of other partnerships. Um, the P-TECH schools are a great example of that. If you are interested in truly providing on-the-job training, go the direction of some of these robust, innovative career and technical education programs and experiential learning programs. Do not go the direction of rolling back child labor protections. So you, 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 there's no apprenticeship for cleaning uh, cleaning up the kill floor at the slaughterhouse, yeah, cleaning the machines, because little hands, little areas, cheap labor, it's good for the... Right? You know, as I've said, I don't think the meatpacking industry could survive without the, the child labor abuses and the immigrant labor abuses uh, that, that we, we currently see. Uh, and I haven't had anyone well, push back yet. I, I just want to say to that point, truly, if we are seeing child labor violations on the rise, and we are, the instinct should be to protect our young people, not relax child labor laws, there you period. Go. There you go. And that's where we're going to leave it. But Mary Catherine, I appreciate you taking some time. Keep up the great work there at the Albert Schenker Institute. I'd love to have you back again real soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Rick. Our good friend, Mary Catherine Ricker. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. Going to take a quick break for our audience on Free Speech TV. Thanks so much for tuning in. We will see you back here next time uh, for our radio audience right back after this. Stick around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So you look at the fact that, as a whole, inequality in this country is at the worst level that it's been since before the Great Depression. Uh, you, know, you know, you go back to the Gilded Age and, and well, they got nothing on us. And this is where you start, you start, looking at the anger that that people seem to have i mean the the reason that we're you know we're, we're constantly on edge the reason that you know people are struggling and and this is one of these moments where you know the right takes advantage of this uh there's a lot of of messaging around you know the country's broke and you're gonna pay for it you know every person's you know a gazillion dollars in debt to the government and they're gonna come and get it today and you go, no, that's that's not how that works. Uh, do we have uh, something of a problem? Yeah, we do. We and we can solve it. 
with sane, rational, thoughtful policy, you know, we we as a country could come together and figure this out. Uh, as I said at the beginning, our debt to GDP ratio is, you know, 123% is what the number that Axios said. Uh, again, we're not Japan at 255% debt to GDP ratio. But when you stop and think about it, and, and you know, many households in this country would love to be 123% uh, debt to GDP ratio. And what that means is your yearly income, um, multiply that by the amount that you're in debt. If you make 50 grand a year and you have a $200,000 mortgage on your home, you have a 400% debt to GDP ratio. You got, you're, you're, you're broke. Now you've got this asset. Maybe, maybe you get to keep it. Um, and, and this is, this is what they use on us. Cause you know, $34 trillion is a lot of money. It is a lot of money. But we've allowed in this country the creation of, of a billionaire class. You know, my grandparents' generation didn't have that. They had a tax code that said, no, no, we want that spread a little more equally. In fact, 1953 top marginal tax rate, 92%. So our, our, our very wealthy at the time, and we had wealthy people back then, we didn't have gazillionaires. We didn't have the Bezoses and the Musks who are in the in the you know hundred and some billion dollars, two hundred billion dollars. We weren't flirting with, you know, in the next couple of years, the next the first trillionaire. Stop and think about that. We're talking about in the next 10 years, there being a trillionaire. And and not taxing them out of existence. Now I find it interesting. Uh, the new story over at the Business Insider. Uh, they, they, the story you know, says that uh, there's a right-wing think tank out there, a corporate right-wing corporate think tank. Uh, and according to their spokesperson, the guy that they quoted, uh, they believe that billionaires are actually great for the economy. Not just good, but great for the economy. And we, we as a country should be thrilled that, you know, Bezos and Buffett and, and Musk and, and all of them, we should be thrilled that they exist. And you go, um, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. I'm not thrilled with the idea that we have created this enormous wealth class through lower wages, less health care, less retirement security, less investment in, the, in our country, less investment in the future. We have, through our tax code, said, no, no, we want more rich people. Understand, we have more billionaires in the U.S. than any country in the world. But, but Rick, that's a sign of our prosperity. No, it's a sign of our stupidity. It's a sign that working people have gone, I'm going to be a billionaire someday. Chances are, no. No, you're not going to make $14 million an hour. Uh, that ain't, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> and I know, my mother's rolling over going, ain't, ain't a word. Uh, but here's the thing. Here's their argument. Their argument is uh, that billionaires are great for the country because uh, they're innovators. And they produce trillions of dollars of value uh, for people here in the country. Uh, and it's why we have nice things. That's the argument. Uh, without them, we'd all be standing around looking at each other, 
Uh, we'd all be walking around aimlessly uh, in the cold without shoes or pants. Uh, we would go hungry without them. Then nothing would get done. It would be a, a barren wasteland, a dumpster fire. It would be, this would be a horrible country without our billionaires. What would we, oh, whoa, oh, what would we do? And the reality is, is, you know, instead of having one dictator, uh, you would, you would socialize this. <gasps> he said the S word. Yeah. Uh, that's what, that's what Wall Street was supposed to be. When these big companies, you know, sprung up, you know, you, you, you broke them up. You taxed the people who started them at a rate where they socialized them. A lot of shareholders. Now, oddly enough, it's a lot of rich people. Um, but that's, that's how our, our system was set up. And we taxed those rich people. And what those rich people decided is instead of paying taxes, we'll, we'll pay higher wages. We'll, we'll invest in, in, in stuff to slap our name on. Um, you know, we'll do all of the things that the Carnegie's and the Mellons and the, the people of that era did which benefited society as a whole. Uh, when everyone was going to the local public school, uh, the rich people and the poor people, the public school did better because the rich guy wasn't going to go, well, there's a poor kid in the school. We're not going to, we're not going to fund sports programs. No, uh, they want the best for their kids and everybody benefited from it. And that's a good thing. But what's happened is, you know, you look at the reality What's happened is we've grown way apart. We have a billionaire class now that last numbers I saw, uh, as of 2021, the top 1% accounted for 14.6% of all wages. That is double the share that it was 45 years ago. Double. The working people at the bottom, the bottom 90% took home 59% of all wages the lowest level ever recorded. Let that sink in for a second. 90% of us got the lowest share of, of wages and income out of the economy than ever. Our, 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 our top 1%, they have double what they got 45 years ago. This is what's known, my friends, as massive redistribution of wealth. But if you go back to the Tea Party people, they were losing their minds over taxes because they thought tax breaks and tax cuts were going to go to them. And I look at the tax cuts that Trump doled out, and right there, right in black and white, the perfect messaging vehicle for Democrats, and you never hear them talk about it. Trump and the Republicans gave rich people permanent tax cuts, permanent corporate tax cuts, permanent high high tax rates tax cuts but you you little folks me you the people who go to work punch clock every week who work for wages um not so much uh those those sunset they go away and the reality is if we had a better distribution of wealth meaning higher wages for workers uh, what that would mean is that would be more more revenue going in into our government coffers. And, and the, the number that they keep throwing around is about $300 billion a year if we, we raise taxes on the, the uh, just 2% on the, 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 the 1%. You're talking about $300 billion a year. That could make a dent in the uh, $34 trillion debt. Uh, I say you go back and you, you raise it a little bit higher. Maybe you get there faster. But... What we've got is, is we've got a billionaire class that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and their insatiable appetite for more. Well, never, never done, never fed, never, never wanting more. 
And don't take my word for it. You know, the, the wealth class of this country from the pandemic forward, uh, they got wealthier during the pandemic and, and until now simply, well, Molly Kinder, uh, she's, she's over at the Brookings Institute. She was quoted in a news article uh, basically saying that, you know, the, the, the wealthy got wealthier because the stock market boomed. Uh, companies did really, really well. They benefited from, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve policies, the low interest rates, from big government spending. They benefited wildly. And what did they do with that money? What did they do with the, the, the money there? They, uh, they doled it out to the people who own the stock. And who owns the stock? Well, Mo- Molly Kinder says uh, the bulk of stock in this country, of shares of stock, are owned by the wealthiest households. Upwards of 70% of all stock are owned by just 5% of the richest household. So you've got 70% of, of the country's assets, really, being held by, by 5%. And they said, look, these companies spent five times more rewarding their shareholders through dividends and stock buybacks than they did raising pay for all of their workers. Now, we know this because we're living it, but we don't hear it. The fact that it's all about the shareholders. It's all about enriching the already enriched. And you go, well, how did they, you know, how did they line their pockets? How did they get, you know, one, what was it, $4.6 trillion in, in net wealth from the pandemic? Some obscene, outrageous number. Here it is. Corporations gouging consumers, you, me, people who spend every almost every dime we earn just to make a living, just to put food on the table, a roof over the head, clothes on, on our kids' backs, uh, you know, sugar and shoes, man. Corporate America knows. Uh, they raise the prices, they raise their profits. Those profits go right from your pocket to, the, to our already wildly wealthy. Why? Because they can. And you go, well, well, you know, inflation is Joe Biden's fault. No, this has been going on for a very long time. This is the we've just noticed it moment. Uh, and you look at the fact that between 1978 and 2020 or 2022, CEO pay in this country rose by more than 1,200%. The average working stiff, that means you and me, our compensation from 1978 to 2022 15.3% increase. I'm sorry, but um, um, that's not great. That's actually, that's actually pretty bad. So investing in things that we need, you know, like roads and bridges and healthcare and education and all of that stuff. Well, <laughs> our billionaires aren't, aren't, aren't interested in that unless there's, unless there's a profit to be made off of it which is why you're seeing this push to destroy public education and privatize and profitize. So we don't pay attention to the fact that we're paying more for health care, getting less, having less life expectancy, that the food we eat is controlled by a handful of corporations who are basically poisoning us because, hey, there are shortcuts to be had. And we're doing nothing politically to hold these corporations. Because remember, they used to be chartered. They used to have to do something for the common good, for the for the public good. It wasn't all about enriching the shareholders. It was about what are you going to do to benefit society? 
I mean, that's out the window. It's been long gone. But so, you know, we're, we're, we're used to that being down the road. But now it's just all about, hey, how can we lie in our pockets? I mean, you know, go back to the you know, 20s and 30s. You know, there are bank robbers, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, Pretty Boy Floyd. You know, all of those 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 characters uh, of that, you know, would rob from the poor and, and or rob from the banks and give to the poor. They would go in and trash bank records so banks couldn't, you know, you know repossess people's homes. Now, they're, they're enriching themselves, too. Don't get me wrong. Today's bank robbers, they're no more Bonnies and Clydes. Uh, today's bank robbers are CEOs and hedge fund managers, and they they don't care about the poor. In fact, what they want to do, they want to exploit the poor. Good cheap labor. We can make more money off their backs. We can give them high interest loans. Why? So we can line our pockets. And this is the thing that just I, I got to tell you, it just just angers me to no end because we're not getting it. We're not getting the reality that we have a tax code that encourages wealth over work. Uh, we have a tax code that has been rigged against average everyday working people. And and look, you know, this thing that I used to believe in, that you work hard, play by, by the rules that you're going to get ahead. It's not surprising to me that I see videos of young people on, on social media going, you know, why do I want to go to a job and, and, and give hours of my life for not even enough money to survive why do i want to go and 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 work for somebody and and dedicate my time my energy my loyalty to someone who doesn't reciprocate who doesn't care now understand these are these are people who grew up watching their parents just abused by wall street by big banks by big corporations by the moneyed interests and they're they're this generation is not going to do it and I don't blame them because what's the reward? Look, I, and I talked about this, you know, not too long ago. Uh, I started in, in the, in the industry that I was in uh, and it was a terrible beginning. I mean, you were laid off every, every winter. You were on call most of the time. Your life was never really your own, but you were making really good money for a working class job. You were making good money. You had really good benefits. You had a really good retirement um, you know, things were good. It had lots of, you know, you go back to the 80s and, and 90s, you know, had tons of disposable income. And because of the fact that you, you Reagan forward, uh, we, we were breaking up unions and, and crushing union density. And, and you know, all of the stuff that, that happened through deregulation and, and Carter signing, you know, trucking deregulation, this pressure, this downward pressure on wages sapped all that away. And now I've got a reasonable paying job. It's not bad. Still have good benefits, still have a good pension. And that's what that's what keeps me doing it. But it's not what it was. And this is where, as a country, we've got to start talking about where do we want to be? What is the what what future do we want? And this is why I'm 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 a supportive of Joe Biden, because it looks like he is turning the corner. It looks like we're pushing back against neoliberalism and, and some of the, you know, the Reaganomic philosophies that got us into the mess that we're in. The fact that we're, we've got an industrial policy that says, hey, we're going we're gonna to create jobs here. In fact, we're going we're gonna to create union jobs here. The fact that we're investing in, in our infrastructure and in our country, that's a good thing, that we're looking at breaking up you know, big corporations and going after uh, trade violations. 
good stuff, stuff we should be celebrating, things that working people should be going, about damn time. This is what we should have been doing years ago. But instead, we're still concerned about you know, who's, who's going to what bathroom. Uh, pronouns. I'm not, I don't even know what a pronoun is, but I'm not using them. I got to tell you, this isn't, this isn't that tough. It's the economy. It's always the economy. And the sooner we all wake up to that reality and we start pushing back and start pushing in a direction that's going to enrich not just our lives, but the working class as a whole, so that we all do better. And in turn, uh, you know, we all pay a little bit more in taxes because we're making a lot more money. And maybe we start paying that debt so the next generation doesn't get completely screwed over. Maybe we talk about that. Maybe we talk about saving the little social safety net that we have, like Social Security and Medicare, instead of letting it wither like Republicans. That's the game plan. That's what they want to do. We're just going to we're just going to let it starve itself. You know, we've locked in the we've locked in the box. Uh, we're not going to allow anything to go in. But, you know, hey, you know, it's 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 just dying on its own. Kind of a natural death. While they've got their their hand over its mouth. But I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, Rick at the Rick Smith Show dot com. Uh, I, it's 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 painfully apparent to me that we better get on the same page and quickly take off the red hats and the blue hats and get that hard hat on if we're going to rebuild this country. If we're going to reunite, we need to re reunionize. Back after this. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1936. That was the day when 20 laborers who were part of the Civilian Conservation Corps got involved in a type of labor they probably never expected. The Civilian Conservation Corps was a program established by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to get young men back to work during the Great Depression. The program employed men ages 18 to 26 to complete public works projects across the nation. CCC crews planted nearly 3 billion trees, constructed 470 fire towers, built 97,000 miles of fire roads, and constructed facilities at 800 parks across the nation. But snowy weather had ground work to a halt in Allegheny County, Maryland. The men of Company 324 were at the 15 Mile Creek camp waiting for the weather to clear. That's when they received a distress call. A woman was trapped due to the snow. She was in labor, but the three mile long access road where she lived was impassable. Even worse, the state's snowplows were busy digging out other roads. The men of the CCC answered the call. 20 volunteers shoveled the snow by hand, working well into the night so the trapped woman could make it to the hospital to deliver her baby. In total, 30,000 young men working in 200-man crews participated in the CCC in Maryland from 1933 to 1942. Due to its proximity to Washington, D.C., the state was designated the first core area. The CCC men helped to build campgrounds, pavilions, and hiking and skiing trails that greatly enhanced the recreation landscape of that state. But for one woman, they were remembered for helping her when she needed it most during the birth of her child on a snowy day in January. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. 
Rick Smith Show. Check out our website, ricksmithshow.com. Questions, comments, something on your mind, email me, Rick, at thericksmithshow.com. So Kevin McCarthy, I haven't heard the last of Kevin. No, no, he has come out. He was he was doing an interview on uh, on the Fox Business with uh, Maria Bartiromo. And, uh, you know, she asked him, you know, he said, you know, hey, uh, you know, why are Republicans, you know, kicking the can down the road and uh, why are they uh, averting a government shutdown? You know, what's going on? And he said, well, you should really ask, be asking the Freedom Caucus. They are the ones who have stopped the Republicans from being able to govern. And that's a pretty important line because it's um, it's Kevin McCarthy saying that. Former speaker, ousted, a little bitter, I'm sure. But I've said that for years now. That is not new. It may be news to McCarthy, or maybe it's something that he has decided that he can say out loud now that it doesn't matter, uh, that he's he's moving along. Wish he'd have done that, you know, I don't know, while he had the power when it mattered. That's what drives me crazy about people. When you have the power to make change, when you have the power to actually do something, you choose not to, but then afterwards, then you come forward. Uh, that's the part that just drives me nuts. And yeah, of course, uh, the the uh, the the Kook Caucus, or the, as they call themselves, the Freedom Caucus, they've they've opposed virtually every everything that you could possibly imagine that would that would well not just make people's lives better, but that would make the government functional. Because remember, these are the people who don't believe in government. These are the people who tell you government's broken, and then they prove it. Uh, these are the people who, if they don't get their way, they take their ball and they go home. These are not the kind of people that you have in government. Because government is about compromise, it's about negotiation, it's about getting stuff done. It's about more than just your ego and, well, your social media platforms. And as I look at this, what's frustrating and angering is this is exactly what our wealth class wants. They want a kind of divided government of people who are hardliners. We're not going to move for any reason because the status quo benefits whom? Uh, um, did, did I hear you say uh, the billionaires? Yeah, uh, the status quo definitely benefits the very wealthy at the expense of working people. Because, look, you know, with all the union uh, organizing and all the militancy going on, all of the, the, new, the new York, there's, there's, there's nothing unless there's government policy to help push that along. Yeah, we've had a lot of activity, and that's great. Uh, building worker power is extremely important. But having that, that legal backing, that's, that's what built the most prosperous working class in history. This idea that it was, oh, it was just magic. It was the invisible hand being magic is is kind of kind of ludicrous. Uh, finally, I want to get to a quick email that I got. Uh, I haven't I haven't talked about this, uh, but Anne from Oklahoma sent me this email. Uh, said, Rick, you were the first person I heard talk about Mary Lou Retton's health condition and lack of health insurance. But I have not heard you follow up after she made the television appearance talking about her condition. I thought for sure you would have followed up. What are your thoughts? Um, my thoughts are it's it's a sad situation. Here is a national treasure, a national icon, someone who the country looked up to. Uh, she's done some things I'm not overly thrilled with, um, you know, around the gymnastics association. But that's an argument for another day. Uh, but here's the thing: this is someone who 
Uh, the country looks to her. This is this is a hero, and look look how far she's fallen. Um, now again, you know, some of it's bad finances, some of it's bad planning, some of it's divorce. Uh, she blames uh, not having health insurance on the fact that she had thirty orthopedic surgeries, and according to her, these are pre-existing conditions. Nothing I can do about that. Um, and you go, no, pre-existing conditions were basically outlawed under the Affordable Care Act. You know, Obamacare. Uh, this this should be a, a learning moment. This should have been a moment where you go, no, Mary Lou. Um, this. And she could have been a spokesperson and go, hey, look at me. I was America's sweetheart. I was on the Wheaties box. And now I'm begging people online for pennies. And look, I don't want to beat her up. I, I don't want to. I, I don't want anything negative said about her. Other than the fact that she chose not to get health insurance. And, and and things have consequences. Now, the reality is a bunch of dumb people reached into their pockets and gave someone who has millions of dollars uh, their hard-earned money because they chose not to, not to buy health insurance. Because what we know, and we know this, um, what was it, four out of five people, according to the guy who's the head of Health and Human, health and human Services, Four out of five people can find a plan for less than 10 bucks a month. And if you are in the higher income, premium costs are capped at eight and a half percent of household income. So even if, you know, a six, let's say a 60 year old with a hundred grand a year in income would, would get a $300 a month subsidy, they'd have to pay about 700 bucks a month towards their premiums, which I got to tell you, if you're, you're getting up in age, I don't know, maybe it's something you think about. So instead of, of you know, doing this interview and, oh, pitiful me, and saying, oh, we're going to give all this money without any details to charity and all that stuff, how about saying, maybe don't not have coverage. Maybe, maybe be the, a spokesperson for the, the good of the ACA, a little education. Uh, but no, I'm not going to beat her up. Um, I wish her well, and I hope all of us get a learning experience out of this. But thanks so much for tuning in. We will see you back here next time. Thanks, thanks for being here. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick, Email Rick. at rick at Show.com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. Banking services debit card provided by Bancorp, Bank NA, or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.